0: In a Peanuts cartoon, Lucy demanded that Linus change TV channels, threatening him with her fist if he didn't. What makes you think you can walk right in here and take over, asked Linus. These five fingers, says Lucy. Individually, they're nothing. But when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. Which channel do you want asks Linus Turning away, he looks at his fingers and says, "Why can't you guys get organized like that?" <laughs> well, this is a funny cartoon story. It teaches us something about unity. That is, unity in the face of opposition is powerful. In today's passage, we see the importance of Christian unity in the face of suffering. My desire is that for today that we would leave here encouraged remembering that when we suffer for Christ we are to labor for gospel unity because it's part of God's plan for our good and his glory. If you're taking notes today our main point is this in the face of suffering live as gospel people by laboring for the gospel in unity. In the face of suffering, live as gospel people by laboring for the gospel in unity. And if you're taking notes, our outline consists of four points. The first point is the exhortation. Live as gospel people. Second, we find the means by laboring For the gospel in unity. Third, the reason God is at work in your suffering. And fourth, the encouragement you're not alone in your suffering. And if you missed any of those, uh, don't worry, I will be repeating them as we uh, come to them throughout the sermon. So please turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 27 through 30. And if you're using a pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 980. This is the word of the Lord. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. As I mentioned just a few minutes ago, our main point for this morning is in the face of suffering, we're called to live as gospel people by laboring for the gospel in unity. Now just to recap of where we've uh, come from so far, So far in the letter, we've seen Paul's gratitude for the Philippians because of their partnership in the gospel. The Philippians had sent their monetary gift along with a server, Epaphroditus, to serve Paul in his time in prison. Paul was also grateful for God's work in the Philippians that he had started and that he would complete. In the letter, we also find Paul's update regarding his circumstances during his time in prison, where Paul writes that his suffering was not something that they should be worried about. Instead, they should rejoice with him because his suffering was serving to advance the gospel. It was being advanced because the Roman imperial guard was coming to know that his imprisonment was for Christ. And also because other Roman Christians were being encouraged to preach the gospel boldly. We've also found that Paul provided clarity and comfort in his letter by telling the Philippians that he would continue to rejoice in his suffering because he trusted that God would continue to be honored in his life. The reason that he could do this was because he considered himself dead, but alive to Christ. He believed that he would have favorable results, results from his upcoming trial, that God's spirit would continue to enable him to make a defense for the gospel. He believed that also God would free him from his circumstance because he still had work to do to build up the Philippians, which would increase their joy. But he also knew that even if God didn't release him or give him the liberty, the, the liberty that he desired, death was not a bad option. As a matter of fact, he desired it because that would serve as a means to bring him to his Savior. And so up until that point, Paul was taking time to inform the Philippians about his circumstance in Rome. And in our passage today, he turns his attention to the Philippians' circumstance in Philippi. And this brings us to our passage for today. Our first point for this morning is, in the face of opposition we are given an exhortation to live as gospel people. Now, it's encouraging to learn about the ways that Paul responded to suffering. If you're a Christian and you've been reading this letter, if you've read this letter, I'm sure that you have rejoiced as you've read that God was being glorified through Paul's suffering. While it's one thing to hear about how other Christians suffer... It's another thing for us to have to suffer ourselves. And this is what Paul now gives his attention to. If you look there at verse 27 with me, Paul writes, he begins this verse by saying, only. This only can be read as, in light of what I have just said about my coming, but in the meantime... Or a different Bible version puts it this way. Just one thing. So you can picture Paul saying something like, Now that I've told you about my situation, just one thing. So it's clear that Paul has something in mind for for the Philippians. And he says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Or another way that we can say this is, Live as gospel people. But how do we live as gospel people? Well, we do this by, if you look there at 27 again with me, we read, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. We do this by living for Christ, by living for Christ. The Philippian Christians were citizens of two kingdoms, citizens of Rome while at Philippi, and most importantly, citizens of heaven. Now, the Philippians' Roman citizenship was obtained automatically by birthright, or it was purchased. And this is not how their heavenly citizenship was uh, was obtained. Now, in the first sermon of this series, we learn that the Philippians' heavenly citizenship came by virtue of their position in Christ. It was Christ who obtained it for them by dying on the cross for them, so that they would have access into his kingdom. We see this in the opening verse. If you look there at chapter uh, chapter 1, verse 1, we read, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Paul was exhorting them to live worthy of their heavenly citizenship during the time that God had called them to live at Philippi. He exhorted them to do this because gospel people have a code of conduct. And this code of conduct is a standard that's given by God himself. And we find descriptions of this throughout scripture, and we'll look at some today. But before we get to that, we have to make some clarifications. When Paul calls the Philippians to live a life worthy of their calling, or worthy of the gospel of Christ, what Paul is not saying is, he's not telling them to make themselves worthy of belonging to the kingdom. That's not what he is saying. Because that would mean that the Philippians would need to try harder, which is not what he was intending to say. Can you imagine Paul writing to the Philippians saying, I thank my my God and all my memory of you for your financial support. Philippians, I got your financial support, but that's not how real that's not how real Christians give offerings. That wasn't enough. Try harder next time. Oh, and by the way, thanks for sending Epaphroditus, but he's of no use to me because he's ill. Don't you have someone who's healthier to send? Come on, get it together if you want to be part of God's kingdom. That's not what Paul was saying. That would be a wrong misinterpretation of what Paul wanted to communicate. Instead, what Paul is saying is, live for Christ because you have been made worthy. Because you have been made worthy. Paul was saying, because of the good work that God has started in you and will complete, namely, God's saving work freely given to them because of Jesus... Live for His glory out of gratitude. This is why God created you. This is why God saved you. Brothers and sisters, this is a remarkable truth. One that, by God's grace, transformed my Christian walk a few years ago. I grew up in a legalistic church where there were many rules, things that you had to do, things that you couldn't do in order to gain your acceptance from Christ. And this was very difficult for me because I found that I was never worthy enough to be accepted into the family of Christ because I knew the sinfulness of my heart. But by God's grace, since coming to First Baptist Church and learning about the truths of gospel living... My life went from trying to do good things to earn my place in Christ's kingdom to living for Christ's kingdom because he made me worthy through his perfect obedience and sacrifice. Let's never forget that it's because of Christ's saving work that we have attained citizenship in his kingdom. Praise God. As Christians, we have been delivered from the dominion of darkness and transferred into His kingdom, according to Colossians 1.13. Therefore, we're called to live as gospel people by living for Christ here on earth, here in Hacienda Heights, in Roland Heights, in Brea, in Pl- at Placentia, La Mirada, South Los Angeles, wherever the Lord has placed you. This is what God calls us to do. How many of you guys have watched the Olympics? If you have, you know that the competing athletes represent their countries. And if you've ever watched the opening ceremonies, you've noticed how each team walks around together with pride, making their home country known. I was given the privilege and opportunity to attend the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. And it was an unforgettable experience. I remember seeing people from just about every country making their way around China, strutting their country's colors, jerseys, and even flags. And there were two things that stood out to me. One, they did so in groups. It was fascinating how I'd come across people complete strangers who whom i had never met who would randomly want to have lunch with me just because i was wearing a team usa t-shirt it's kind of like we just gravitated towards one another and people were doing this in all over the place in subways stores in the restaurants people would unite because they had one thing in common their citizenship The second thing that stood out to me was that who they represented was clear. They were not embarrassed. They were not ashamed to represent their home country. They wanted it to be known who they were cheering for. And this gives us somewhat of an idea of how we are to live here on earth. We're called to represent our true and heavenly citizenship, which is in heaven with pride and honor for the glory of King Jesus. Now, Paul's exhortation helps us understand that gospel living is just as important as gospel proclamation. Something else that we learn about this exhortation is that we're to do this at all times. We're to do this at all times, and we see this in the second half of verse 27. It reads, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Paul was hopeful that he would be released from prison so that he could continue ministering to them, building them up in their faith. But Paul also understood that there was a real possibility that he might not return. Regardless of what God willed for him, Paul wanted the Philippians to live as gospel people at all times. And the reason for this was because upon the moment of their salvation, the Philippians renounced their allegiance to their own kingdom, the kingdom that they had built for themselves when they had rejected God. There was to be no conflict with their own kingdom and Christ's kingdom. Instead, they were to live for the good and loving King, King Jesus. That was true for them, and it's true for us today, if we're Christians. Therefore, we are to live as gospel people, heavenly citizens, wherever we go and at all times. This is a helpful reminder to us, that we are to live as gospel people, wherever we go, wherever God assigns us to live. Our identity is to govern how we live. So now that we know that in the face of suffering, we're exhorted to live as gospel people, how do we do this? This brings us to our second point. We do this by laboring for the gospel in unity. Laboring for the gospel in unity. And this is the means Earlier in the letter, we learned that Paul labored for the gospel in the face of suffering by preaching the gospel boldly to everyone who crossed his path. That was one of the ways that he labored for the gospel in his suffering. Now, Paul was calling them to also labor for the gospel by doing so in unity. But what exactly does that mean? Well, two commentators say, Paul provides us with two word pictures, standing firm in one spirit and striving side by side with one mind. These word pictures help us see that believers are like soldiers and like athletes. So having said this, laboring for the gospel in unity means standing firm with the same goal, standing firm with the same goal. Paul called the Philippians to stand firm because he knew the kind of opposition they were facing. In Acts chapter 16, when Paul went to Philippi along with Silas, they encountered resistance to the gospel because Paul cast out a spirit of divination from a slave girl who had greatly annoyed him. Now this angered the girl's owners So they had Paul and Silas seized and dragged into the marketplace to wrongly accuse them. Well, these wrongful accusations led to them getting a beating with rods and then getting thrown into prison. Paul got annoyed, he cast the spirit out, and now Silas is suffering with Paul. And it wasn't any kind of suffering, it was a beating. Thankfully, Silas didn't get mad at Paul for getting him beat up. Instead, they stood firm in unity because of their common goal. After they were arrested and thrown into prison, they prayed and sang hymns to God together. And as if that weren't enough, they continued with their goal of making Christ known by preaching the gospel to the very jailer that was watching them. This is what the Philippians were to do in the face of their own suffering. They were to stand firm by holding their ground like soldiers behind enemy lines. There was no going AWOL, no deserting of the mission. Their standing firm was to be in one spirit, which means in one common purpose. In the face of suffering for their faith in Christ, their focus was to remain on their mission. And this was possible because of the Spirit's work in their lives. Just as the Spirit had done so with Paul and Silas, the Spirit would also do with them. So first, Paul says that laboring for the gospel in unity means standing firm with the same goal. And second, Laboring for gospel unity also means contending for the same purpose. Contending for the same purpose. And we see this in the second half of verse 27, where Paul writes, with one mind striving side by side. If standing firm with the same goal illustrates the Christian life, to be like a soldier, then contending for the same purpose helps us understand the Christian life to be like that of an athlete. To strive side by side is where we get this word contend from, which means to engage in a competition or to engage in the games. The image in Paul's mind was that of a gladiator in an arena, an arena of faith. So the Philippians were to contend or to engage in competition as one unit, one team. It was not a one-man competition. It was a group effort. So if you're into sports, it's not boxing. It's more like football. Everyone on the team is needed to execute their roles in order to succeed on the field. This is what they were to do in the face of opposition or persecution. So First Baptist Church. This first description of gospel unity in this passage calls us to labor for the gospel as a unit. Keep in mind that we're in a spiritual war here on earth, here in Hacienda Heights. and God has recruited you and assigned you to platoon First Baptist Church of Hacienda Heights. This means that you're like a soldier who belongs to this particular unit, this local church. And we understand that because Paul was calling the Philippians to labor for Jesus in their own unit, which was located in Philippi at their local church. Now, if you look at the second description You can see yourself as an athlete who has been recruited to compete for Team Jesus. You're called to engage in competition according to your position or your role. This means that you're like an athlete who belongs to this particular team. And the goal for both of these is the same. The goal is to please our recruiter. Paul writes in a second letter to Timothy about this, and he describes a soldier's goal as to please the one who enlisted him, 2 Timothy 2.4. And we do this by following our recruiter's commands, our recruiter being Jesus. Did you know that there's a manual based on the Bible here at First Baptist Church that lists ways to help you please our King, King Jesus? Do you remember that code of conduct that we mentioned not too long ago? Well, the document that holds this information is called our church covenant. And I won't read the whole thing right now, but our church covenant serve, serves as a voluntary promise that we make to God, to our fellow brothers and sisters here at First Baptist Church, and to ourselves of how we will conduct ourselves while we're, in, while we're members of this church. The promises in our covenant are summaries of biblical commands given to us by God for His pleasure and for our good. Listen to two of them. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. A promise that we've made to each other, to God, to ourselves. Listen to another one. We will endeavor by example and effort to win souls for Christ. Sound familiar? Remind you of our passage? The way to accomplish this unity and gospel advancement comes in another promise that we also make from our church covenant. Listen. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor omit the great duty of prayer for both ourselves and for others. And those are just three of the many promises that we've made that these are commands that we find in scripture that God gives us as Christians who belong to a particular church these commands can only be fulfilled in a unit or a team or a local church where there exists church membership where you know who belongs to your team you won't be able to fully obey them on your own because That's not part of God's design. And so if this is true, then first, Baptist Church, let's strive to obey these commandments by laboring together for the gospel in unity. We're called to be united with one another, not divided. We're called to pray for one another. We're called to encourage one another. We're called to care for each other because Christ is worth it, because he purchased us with his life. Earlier, before the service started, I was encouraged by two brothers who came up to me and said, Brother, I've prayed for you. Let me pray for you again. That was hugely encouraging to me as they were Caring for me, laboring with me to encourage me as I prepare to deliver this message to you. There are many ways that we can do this. And if you're a member of First Baptist Church, look at the church covenant. This will make it easy for you to know what to do. And we're able and empowered to do this because the spirit of God lives in us. We do this by his power. Through his work in us. So, first, Paul says that laboring for the gospel in unity means standing firm with the same goal and contending for the same purpose. And what is their common goal? And what is their common purpose? If we look at verse 27 once again, Paul says that it's for the faith of the gospel. For the faith of the gospel. This is what we've seen in Paul's life. This is what he gave his life for, for Christ, through the advancement of the gospel. This is the same mission that the Philippians had. We saw earlier that they were called to live a life as gospel people. And now we see again that this gospel is what they were to contend for. Now, unfortunately, there were false gospels being preached in Paul's day, just like in ours. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul wrote, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Galatians 1, 6 and 7. Paul knew that the content of the gospel is important because if you get the content wrong, you'll get the mess, the mission wrong. If you get the content wrong, you'll get the mission wrong. Imagine what would happen if the Philippians believed a false gospel, such as the prosperity gospel. Do you know what would happen? Paul's words, Paul's letter, would land on deaf ears because this false gospel claims that the aim of Christianity is to provide health, wealth for all Christians, and suffering is a God of God's displeasure. So believing a false gospel like the prosperity gospel would lead the Philippians to say something like, what do you mean live in unity in the face of suffering? Suffering? I'm not called to suffer. I'm called to be healthy and wealthy and rich. No thanks, Paul. But thankfully, the Philippians knew the right gospel. Christian, if you're a new Christian and you are visiting us today, we're glad that you're here. And if you're not a Christian and you're interested in knowing what this gospel is all about, we're happy that you're here too. We believe that this gospel is... This gospel that we believe, this gospel of Christ, as presented in the Bible, is the most important thing that we could know. Because if you get the gospel wrong, we'll sign up for something that we were not expecting. The gospel is a message of good news that can be summed up in four words. God, man, Christ, response. And this message is this. God is a holy and righteous God who created everything, the world, including us. Because he is holy and righteous, God has the right to tell us how to live. And though man was created by God and for God, all of us have rebelled against God and we all deserve God's righteous judgment. And we have given ourselves to live under our own rule and we've rejected God. And the Bible calls this sin. And the consequence of this is eternal punishment or eternal separation from God in hell. But because God is merciful, because God is gracious, God took it upon himself to send his son Jesus Christ into this world to seek and to save all who would repent of their sins and trust in him so that by placing our trust in Him and repenting of rebelling against God, because of Christ's work, God freely and willingly forgives you of all of your sins and adopts you into His family. And this requires a response. God calls every one of us, every person who has not repented and believed to repent. And to put our trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And by doing so, the Bible says, the Bible promises, God says, that He will forgive all of your sins. Past, present, and future. He'll wipe your debt clean and transform you from the inside out so that you would begin to live the way that he created you to live, which is in obedience to him, where you would find your greatest joy, your greatest treasure, which is in him. Unless you believe this gospel, this sermon will make you want to reject Christ instead of want to rejoice in Christ. The Philippians knew what gospel Paul was referring to, and this is what they were to labor for. One more thing, that they were, they were to do, um, while living in unity, they were to do so without fearing, without fearing their opponents. And we see that in the first half of verse 28, where he says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Paul doesn't give much information about the identity of these opponents, but some scholars believe that they were coming from outside of the church. It wasn't an internal problem; it was an external problem. These were probably, or most likely, unbelievers like the owners of the of the girl who was possessed by a spirit of divination, who opposed the gospel and wanted to intimidate or even persecute the Philippians. So Paul called the Philippians not to fear man, instead. They were called to endure the suffering as followers of Christ by standing in unity for the advancement of the gospel. They were to advance the gospel by preaching it boldly and faithfully. Now, according to Paul, laboring in unity and without fear gives evidence of two things. First, it gives evidence of the destruction of gospel enemies. Verse 28 says, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. Now the, reason that the en- that now the reason they were enemies, those who opposed the gospel, was because they opposed the gospel. Their opposition to the gospel gave clear evidence that they did not belong to God nor wanted to do anything with him. Think about this. If the gospel is the only way for man to be forgiven and made right with God, how could one expect anything other than destruction or ruin in this world? As enemies, they would not prevail on judgment day because their rejection of the only Savior powerful enough to save them would leave them without any hope. Now, if you're visiting us today, and you're not a Christian. We praise God that you're here. We've actually prayed that God would bring you. And if you've been following along in this sermon, we want to plead with you. We want to beg you to consider what you've been listening to. The Bible says that God is loving and merciful, but he is also holy and just. And this means that everyone will have to stand before him one day to give an account of every thought, of every word, of every action. Most importantly, we will all have to give an account of what we did with his son, Jesus, with the good news of his son, the good news of what Jesus has done to offer forgiveness of sins. God promises that his enemies will not win they will be destroyed. But he also promises that he will forgive everyone who repents of rebelling against him. And he will freely bestow forgiveness and mercy and kindness and grace to everyone who repents and trusts in him. If you have any questions, you can ask that person that invited you or anyone that's sitting next to you, and we would be more than happy to tell you more about this message and how it's made available to you. It's free of charge. Christ paid it all on the cross, and we'd be more than happy to tell you about this. Now, the second evidence that their unity gives is salvation of gospel people. Salvation of gospel people. Just as God's enemies... Rejection of Christ gives evidence of their destruction. Gospel people's lifestyle, standing in unity for the sake of Christ and enduring suffering, serves as evidence that they belong to Christ. It's evidence that we belong to Christ. The ability to do these things is supernatural. None of us could do this out of our own nature, it doesn't come from man. It's something that comes from God as he works in his people for his glory. And we see that at the end of verse 28. He says, and that from God. Paul says, in the face of suffering, live as gospel people by laboring for the gospel in unity because it gives evidence that you are a citizen of his kingdom. Now that we've looked at the exhortation and the means, let's look at the reason. That is, the reason we live as gospel people by laboring for the gospel in unity is because suffering, God is at work in our suffering. God is at work in our suffering. And we see that in verse 29. It says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. We learn two things about God's work in suffering. First, God grants Christians faith. God grants Christians faith. We've seen that it is God who starts and finishes the good work of salvation in believers. And in verse 28, we saw that that salvation, the salvation that we have, has come from God. So if it comes from God, then salvation is not man's doing. It is God who grants or privileges man with the faith to believe in the message of the gospel. If you hear his words today and you respond in repentance and faith, it is not because you did it. It is because God in his kindness grants it to you. And that's true of all of us here who claim to be followers of Jesus. We did not earn it. We did not deserve it. We were not looking for God. He pursued us and he Saved us. In eternity past, it pleased God to set His eyes on you. And at the right moment, at the right time, it pleased God to reveal Christ to you so that you would believe and be saved. It's all a work of God's doing. And it is this faith in Christ that grants us entrance into His kingdom. The second thing that we learn about God's work in suffering is that God grants Christians suffering. It comes from God. Suffering is from God. The faith that was given to us is from God. And this faith, this acceptance, this faith gave us our acceptance into God's kingdom. A second privilege that comes along with Believing is the privilege of suffering, suffering for Christ. Now, this may sound weird because who really looks at suffering as a privilege or a gift? Well, listen to Jesus' words to his disciples from John 15. He writes, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus tells us that the reason the world hates us is because we don't belong to the world. We don't belong to this world, this kingdom. We belong to him. We see that God's greatest gift came to us in the person of Jesus Christ who suffered in this world as he was hated by many to the point that he was crucified on a cross. Jesus, God's suffering servant, is one who, the one who experienced the ultimate suffering of God's wrath so that Christians would be forgiven and accepted by him. Having been given this gift of faith, we are also given the gift of suffering for Him. He suffered for us in a unique way that saved us. Now we get to suffer for Him, but not in a way that saves, instead in a way that advances the same message that He came to deliver to us. When we were suffering for Christ... When we suffer for Christ, excuse me, remember that the world hated him first. And because he chose us, the world will hate us too. But the hatred that we experience is really a hatred of Jesus being carried on in our body because he lives in us. This is a great reason to rejoice. Because it proves and confirms that we are His. This is comforting. As I mentioned last week, I've had the opportunity to sit with patients in hospice care who have spent the last days, the last hours of their life in fear paralyzed, trembling, because they knew what was coming. They knew that there was a judgment waiting for them, and they did not enjoy their last days in this world. But what a joy, what a comfort it is to know that we are His, that we are Christ's, that we belong to Him, that regardless of what happens in this world, We are secure in him. And no matter what we face, even if God were to call us and give us the privilege of dying for Christ, he suffers with us. He has chosen us. We didn't deserve it. And now we get to suffer for the king who suffered to save us. There is no higher honor than to live for Jesus and to give our life for Him, if that's what He calls us to do. This was Paul's desire. This is why he writes, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he wants that to be our aim in life too. Jesus, the author of life, has promised eternal life to us. Therefore, suffering suffering and death can do nothing to us. They are no longer enemies. If anything, they serve to comfort us because if we suffer, it confirms our salvation. And if we die, it takes us to our Savior. So the faith and suffering that we're given, we've learned that it comes from from God. And it's given to us for the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ. Verse 29 says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, these things should happen. Our faith in suffering is for the sake of Christ because the gospel is about Christ. Our faith in Christ gives, us, gives our life new meaning. Our life is now, is now governed by the gospel We are gospel people. Our suffering is for Christ because we belong to Christ. And we bring glory to him when we advance his mission even at the cost of our own suffering. And we do this because Christ is our greatest greatest treasure. And when we treasure Christ more than life itself, When we treasure Christ more than any material possession, more than anything that's been created in this world, it brings Christ's glory because it reveals where our treasure is. Each one of us will, will suffer in some way or form in different degrees. We can count on that because the text here tells us that God gives Christians the privilege of not only believing in Christ, but also suffering for Christ. So this is why you should not fear suffering. You should expect it. But you can expect it with peace and joy because of the one who is good and who gives good gifts for our good and for his glory. Now that we've looked at the exhortation, the means, and the the reason, we look at the encouragement. That is, we labor for the gospel in unity as gospel people, being encouraged that we are not alone in our suffering. We are not alone in our suffering. Verse 30. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear, that I still have. Paul has been telling us about his suffering. Suffering throughout this letter. And here he reminds us of it. Paul encourages the Philippians to obey his exhortation. Not as someone who stands from the outside looking in. But as someone who suffers with them. And he tells the Philippians. Look. Everything that I'm telling you is true. I'm in the fight with you. I'm suffering alongside each and every one of you. You saw my suffering when I was with you in Philippi, Acts 16. You saw how I got beat up. You saw how I was imprisoned for the gospel, for the cause of Christ. I believe these truths too. I've experienced them and therefore... I want you to experience them too. Then he says, he points them to his previous sufferings, and now he says, and now hear that I still have. We also see Paul's present suffering. Once again, Paul says, you've seen my past suffering, now look at my present suffering. Trust me, I know what I'm telling you. Live as gospel people by laboring for the faith in unity. I am experienced and suffering for Christ. You're not alone. It's an encouraging thing to know that one's teacher participates in the lessons that we learn as students. It's a scary thing for you or for us to have to go through something new on our own. How many of you guys have started a new job where you were unfamiliar with... Your new tasks or your new duties. It's pretty scary, huh? You think, how am I going to do this? What if I mess up? What if I don't know what to do? Who do I ask? But isn't it comforting when you have someone who is trained and experienced and sits next to you and says, don't worry. I'll teach you. I'll walk with you. We'll do this together. It's much better and more comforting. Well, this is what Paul is doing with them. Suffering will not always be easy. Suffering is hard. But when suffering is hard, we must be reminded of the gospel. When suffering is hard, look to the resolution for suffering, which is Christ. He is with you in your suffering. He's never distant. He's always near. He lives in you By his spirit, and he's promised to never leave you. And because we are in him, we are given courage, strength, and encouragement to suffer for him. Look at Christ's work on the cross for assurance. For the assurance that he keeps his promises and suffers with us. In conclusion, the ability to believe in Christ is a gift that comes from God. This gift is a privilege that also comes with suffering. And we have seen that our suffering is not something that we ought to be surprised by. Instead, we ought to expect it and respond in Christian unity because this brings God glory. So what do we do in the face of suffering? We're exhorted to live as gospel people by contending for the gospel in unity. And we do this because God is at work in our suffering. And we take courage because we are not alone in our suffering. May God work this in our midst for His glory and our joy. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise You for being the one and true living God who is worthy of being lived for we praise you we and we exalt you for giving us faith to believe in your son jesus christ when the only thing that we deserved was your just wrath and judgment we thank you father that you are a good god a giver of good gifts and your good gift or gifts include believing in christ suffering for christ but most importantly, Christ Himself. We praise You that in Christ we have been forgiven and we have been accepted, and we are now citizens of Your kingdom. Oh Father, we pray that by Your Spirit You would give us boldness and courage to suffer as gospel people, and to suffer well by suffering in unity. We pray that You would enable us to keep our church covenant, by caring for one another, praying for one another, all for your glory and our good. And we pray that our joy would increase as we see you at work in our life. We pray, Lord, that in whatever suffering you call us to, that you would enable us to suffer well so that others would come to know you and experience the joy that we have in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.